Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. This time we've got a little bit of a longer episode than normal because we've actually got a lot to get through to finish off the story we started last time. If you remember, we left off last episode midway through the second of the three tales of Prince Poich that make up the first branch of the Mabinogion. There are four branches, by the way, and the Mabinogion naturally has 11 stories in total. So that's all pretty clear. Obviously, I'd highly recommend you go back and listen to the last episode if you haven't already, but if you're going to be willfully contrary in your attitude to podcast order, Well, what can I do to stop you? So, let's have a quick recap. Previously on Tales of Britain and Ireland. Our protagonist, Poich, Prince of Devid, a kingdom at the southwestern tip of Wales, went on an adventure to the other world, where, in an odd set of circumstances, he first defended and then built up a friendship with the king of that land. That friendship being based on the mutual deception of all of their subjects. But that's kind of unimportant now, because Poik is back, ruling David, and at his court in Narbreth. In between feasts, him and his people have been standing on a mound each afternoon. For two days, they've watched a rider pass by on a big white horse. Intrigued, Poik has sent his people to pursue the rider, but each time without luck, as some kind of enchantment has kept her always just out of reach. Well, as the saying goes, if you want a job done properly, do it yourself. So... On the third day, Poik did just that. At first, he experienced the same problem as his men, but eventually, he called out to the rider and asked her to wait for him. And to everyone's surprise, she stopped. And even more surprisingly, she said this. Well, I am Rhiannon, and my father wishes to give me a husband against my will. But I have only ever wanted one man. I want you. And so, I have come to ask you to marry me. What do you say? And now the conclusion. Poik didn't have to mull it over for very long at all. He didn't know anything about Rhiannon, but what he did know was that she was the most breathtakingly beautiful woman he'd ever met, and that she really wanted him. Wanted him so much as to have asked for his hand in marriage. That was more than enough for the prince. Honestly, Rhiannon, If I had my choice of every woman in this world, then it is you that I would choose. I say yes. Yes, I want you, Rhiannon. It was Rhiannon, wasn't it? Yeah. More than any other. I accept. Good, she replied in a business-like tone. Well, before I am due to be given to another, we must arrange a meeting. Poik was determined not to screw this miracle up. A meeting, as soon as possible, wherever and whenever you want, my lady. Now, I have to wonder whether there is some subtext here in Rhiannon's meeting proposition. In the everyday sense, they were of course meeting right now, in this field. But likely there is something more meant here. A more formal meeting in front of others, a marriage if you will. And also, a more intimate meeting as well. Right, said Rhiannon. The meeting shall be exactly a year from tonight. At the court of Hen, my father, where a feast will be prepared. Will you be there? Of course, I shall. 
Gladly will I attend. Farewell then, my lord, for I must depart now. Remember to keep your promise. I shall see you in a year's time. As she rode off, Poik reflected on how lucky it was that he already had practice at keeping promises for exactly a year. He'd done it the last time, and he was going to do it again. When he returned to his men, they had lots of questions, but Poik wouldn't answer any of them. He spoke of other things instead, and eventually they stopped asking, which is a bit of a luxury of command, really. Now you've probably got lots of questions too. I know I certainly do. Questions like, what was the deal with the magical horse? How did Rihanna know and love Poik? And indeed, why did he fall in love with her? If she wanted to be caught up, why did she run away until he called on her? And plenty of other questions besides. And to put you out of your misery, I'm going to tell you that right now, none of these questions will be answered. There are probably very good explanations for the presence of these themes in terms of when the stories were written, but those have been lost to the mists of time, and they aren't answered in the story at all. The magical horse never really comes up again, unfortunately so you're just going to have to kind of accept most of this stuff. Go with the flow where the story takes you, and it'd be much easier, I promise. One day I will even take my own advice on this, but until then you'll keep getting these asides. So, back to the story. A year passed, and on the allotted day Poik set off with 99 of his horsemen. They rode to the court of Hefeid Hen, Rhiannon's father. What his opinion was on all of this is not explicitly revealed, but despite having originally given his daughter away to a man she hated, Hefed seemed happy to accept Poich now. The prince and his men were greeted with exceptional warmth, invited in to enjoy all the wonders of the feast. Poich was sat with Hefed on one side and Rhiannon on the other. A year had passed, but still she was as beautiful as before. Everything was coming up roses for Poich. Poich's men and the men of the court were getting on great, and after the feast, the real drinking and partying began. At this time, a tall, well-dressed man came to the upper end of the hall and greeted Poik. He had a regal bearing to him, and Poik warmed to the stranger, offered him a seat. Thank you, but no, I'm here to ask a request of you. Such occurrences were common at feasts, and it often served the Lord's reputation well to be magnanimous at such times. Rhiannon laid her eyes on the man, opened her mouth to speak, but before she could, Poik was already answering. My good sir, whatever you ask of me, if it is my power to provide it, I shall of course grant it to you. What? burst out Rhiannon. Why did you say that? Poik turned to his true love with alarmed surprise. Aha, said the stranger, a triumphant leer in his voice. But he has said it, my lady, in the presence of all these noblemen at that. Poik was a little confused, but decided to press on. Um, friend, what is your request? You intend to sleep with the woman I love most tonight, and she with you. And my request, well within your power, is that you give her to me and I'll take the preparations and provisions that are here for this marriage with me as well, and make it my own. Um, Poik suddenly went very quiet. 
Rhiannon rolled her eyes. Yeah, you just shut up for as long as you like, said Rhiannon. Honestly, never has a man been more stupid than you have just been. My love, I didn't know who he was. Well, my love, let me tell you. This smirking gentleman is Gwalvab Cleed, the one who they wanted to give me to against my will. And since you've given him your word, you're going to have to give me to him, or else suffer disgrace, aren't you? Do remember that Poich was the man she loved most of all in the world, and this was just the second time they had met. At this point, surely Rhiannon was regretting her choice, or perhaps all the other men in the world were somehow even worse than Poich. May we just have a moment alone, please, Gwal? asked Rhiannon, sweetly. Of course, my dearest, though only a moment, and then you'll be coming with me, forever. The camera zooms in on Gwal's face, which has suddenly become underlit. He raises his hands up in a gesture of triumph and utters a villainous laugh. <laughs> Probably. If you're quite finished, said Rhiannon coolly, a moment. She turned to address the despondent and stupid object of her affections. Right, my dear, listen very carefully. Do exactly what I say, and he shall never have me. What do you... Shh, listen. Firstly, the preparations and provision here for our marriage are not in your power to give. They are mine and my father's, and they've already been gifted to the retinues here. So that's nice and simple, the answer to that one. And he will need a feast if he is to wed me and sleep with me. So, as for me... I will arrange a meeting here between my people and Gwal with all new provisions and entertainment set up. That meeting will take place in, and there's no prizes for this one, a year's time. Okay? Uh, okay? Right. And now listen to this bit very carefully. At this, Rhiannon produced an innocuous looking sack. Where were you keeping that? Never mind, just listen. We don't have much time. It was a few minutes later when Gwal returned. Right, my lord, you've had time enough. You owe me an answer. My good friend, I shall of course honour my promise and give you everything that is in my power to give. Rhiannon decided to cut Poich off at that point and chimed in, making sure he didn't have a chance to ruin the whole thing. But you see, my lord, the feast and preparations are not his to give. They belong to the men of David and to the retinue here and I shall not allow them to be given to anyone else. Gwal's eyes narrowed. But don't worry, a year from tonight a feast will be prepared in this court, and after that you, good friend, shall sleep with me. Hmm, you're not going to get out of this, you know. Okay, a year's time. And with that, Gwal set off for his realm. And Poik returned to David, having right royally screwed everything up. Admittedly, he had done so by being generous and trusting, but in the cut and thrust of the bloodthirsty world of British court politics, these were not traits that were well rewarded. And yet another year passed. Luckily, this being the third annual wait, Poich was now a total pro at doing nothing for a year, and then following instructions received the previous year very closely. Which was good. 
because Rhiannon's plan depended on it. And so all the parties waited. The long days of summer shortened into the leaf-strewn autumn. The autumn gave way to the harsh dead of winter, when the nights were long and the ground was covered in ice. But relief from that finally came as the buds of spring burst through the soil and new life bloomed. And then it was early summer again. And as had happened on this very day the previous year, there was a feast going on in the court of Hevith Hen. This time it's Gwaal's men and Rhiannon who enjoyed the sumptuous food and the entertainment. As the year before, when the meal was done and it was time for carousing, a stranger appeared. A desperately poor rag-clothed beggar made his way slowly to the end of the hall where Gwaal and Rhiannon sat. And as Gwaal had asked Poich for an act of charity, this beggar now asked Gwaal for a small request. Of course, if your request is reasonable, then you shall have it, said Gwaal, who, with this careful wording, proved himself far too cunning to be hoisted on his own petard. He was well aware of how the game could be played. It is just a small, simple thing. You see, I am a poor and hungry man, and all I ask is that, in the moment of your joy, you could do me a kindness and fill this little bag here with food. The beggar produced a modest-sized sack from about his person. Quell knew the boost to his reputation that small acts of charity provided, and this was certainly no unreasonable request. Not a problem, my good man. He snapped his fingers. Servants, fill it up. A servant gathered a small amount of food from the table and put it into the beggar's bag. That was odd. The bag didn't seem quite full. The puzzled servant picked up a few more items and put them in as well. In they went, and yet the bag didn't look any fuller. Quickly the whole room became transfixed by the beggar and his bag. The servant floundered, and another rushed forward with a decent-sized leg of lamb. That had to do it. The leg was bigger than the bag itself. Silently, the meat disappeared. Unease started to spread. Mm, friend said Gwal. Will your little bag ever be full? Oh no, said the beggar. The only way it can be full is if a man of noble bearing, with land, property and titles, gets inside the bag, treads it down with both feet, and says the words, Enough has been put in here. Now this is the point where you'd expect Gwal to call the deal off. That wouldn't seem unreasonable by standards we might be used to. But that doesn't take into account the weight given to a nobleman's word in this society. As with Poik's promise, this wasn't just something Gwal could go back on. He'd given his word to fill the bag. And if all he had to do was stamp on the food in the bag and say some words, then that wasn't too much to ask anyway. Sure, with this trick the beggar had got more than Gwal was expecting, but he could bring the farce to an end now. So he went to the clearly very magical bag and placed both feet in it. And with one quick motion, the beggar... No, no, let's drop the pretense. With one quick motion, Poik lifts up the bag 
and Guao falls straight in. Poik ties a knot in the bag strings, throws off the rags that form the cunning disguise he has, and reaches for the hunting horn he has concealed underneath. Following one short blast on the horn, Poik's men rushed into the hall. They took hold of the drunk, confused and leaderless men of Gwaal, and in a few minutes it was all over. Gwaal's men were tied up, and Gwaal himself was in the bag. Rhiannon breathed a deep sigh of relief. He'd done it. He'd actually done it. Used the bag she had given him exactly as per her plan. Now Poik's men turned their attention to the magic bag, and they took turns either kicking or striking it with clubs. As each man came to the bag, he would ask the others, What's in the bag? And what game are you playing? Oh, it's a badger, and we're playing mm, badger in the bag. Ah, badger in the bag. And then the new man would give the bag a sharp blow. From inside the bag came many cries and eventually a plea emerged from its inhabitant. Please stop. Killing me in a bag is no fitting death for one such as me. And at this, Heved Hen finally spoke up. Heved Hen, you know, Rhiannon's father, the guy who owned the hall this whole scene is playing out in, who presumably has agency and people of his own, but seems perfectly content just to sit back and watch Poi, Kriannon and Gwaal fight it out. Maybe he was just too reserved to step in. Oh, you've brought heavily armed soldiers who weren't invited to my hall, and now you've just incapacitated the guests who were invited. Well, I can see that's keeping you very busy, so I'll just kind of watch. But apparently, the potential beating to death of Gwaal in a magic bag was the limit. It is true what he said, it is not a fitting way to die. That the arguments here are based on the nature of the death and not the act of murder in itself doesn't really seem to have crossed anyone's mind. Oh, okay, said Poich. He signalled for his men to stop. There was a sigh of relief from the bag. Well, my lord, I will follow your advice on the matter, said Poich. Heved Hen opened his mouth to speak. This is what I advise, said Rhiannon. Heved Hen slowly closed his mouth. Let Gwaal pay for all the costs of this here feast and agree to give up his claim on me, and then extract from him a firm promise that he will leave and seek no vengeance. And his men here shall witness all of this if he accepts these terms. A muffled voice cried out, I gladly accept those terms. Then so do I said Poich. And then there was a bit of an interlude where Gwaal was let out of the sack and various legal matters were sorted. Oaths were sworn and witnessed and such like. It was all the oral society equivalent of doing the paperwork. And finally, a much diminished Gwaal begged permission to leave, to tend to his many wounds, run himself a nice long bath and presumably forget that today had ever happened. Heveve allowed him to go, and after all the excitement of the day, everyone obviously went to bed. No, no, they didn't. 
In fact, all of Poik's people sat down, and the feasting and carousing continued, with Heveve's people. They who'd literally only an hour or so before been feasting with Gwal's people. What they made of it all, I have no idea. But after feast number two for those guys, the time for bed eventually came. Rhiannon and Poik went to her chambers together, and they spent the night in pleasure and contentment. A full two years after they had first met. And let's take an aside here, because yes, there are, again, unanswered questions. We could start with why did Rhiannon have a magic bag? Progress to why did they have to wait a year to carry out this plan? Really, what was happening with Hevard's men? And those are all fine questions, but you have to give some allowance for the demands of the narrative form and those fall within them. The crucial questions for me are really around how tricking a man into a bag and then violently assaulting him is somehow acceptable when breaking your promise to him is not. It does seem pretty odd that the situation was all, oh no, you have won Gwal with your sneaky scheme, I must give Rhiannon to you. Oh, unless of course I just beat you up and you give in. That's fine, and very legal. In fact, it's so above board we can even sign contracts. Like some of the other clever solutions we've seen in folktales, this plan of Rhiannon's doesn't feel that cunning. Though this is very much my own ignorant modern viewpoint interjecting here, and I will try and cut that off and continue with the story. I just needed to express my confusion there, for a little bit. Oh, and if you're wondering about the whole badger thing, well, it probably comes from the practice of catching badgers in bags and beating them to death. And this moment of the story is referred to as the very first time that Badger in the Bag was played. This unfortunately very much suggests that this person in a sack game was something that happened to more people than just Gwal. Anyway, really, back to the story now. So, after that night of passion between Rhiannon and Poich, it was time for day two of the feast. And like all good feasts, it went on for a few days more, and a riotous good time was had by all, with gifts from Poik and the absent Gwal. And at the end of it all, Poik and Rhiannon left for David together, and Rhiannon was introduced to all the nobles of the land, and she and Poik began their new lives ruling together. And from Gwal, there was not a peep. And years passed in this manner, and all was good in the land. year, the nobleman of the land summoned Poich to a meeting. It was basically an intervention. Though he was ruler, he needed the consent of his nobles to rule. And they had concerns. Well, one concern. Poich, you have been married for some time now, and we cannot help but notice that as of yet, your queen has produced no heir. You may not like to change wives, but you know there must be an heir. And if this wife cannot provide you with one, then you will take a wife who can. Now this must have taken some guts, arrogance or ignorance on behalf of these men, who appear to have forgotten Rhiannon and her magical horse and magical bag, which would have made me quite wary about moving against her. But they clearly had very strong ideas about the need for an heir, and Poich did understand them. It was a grave matter. But he truly loved Rhiannon, 
and he was not prepared to give her away so easily. He responded by proposing a formula he was by now very comfortable with. I hear you, but it's early yet. Tell you what, let's arrange to meet in exactly a year's time. And you can decide then what to do. And of course, the men agreed to wait. Now, in keeping with Poik's general streak of good luck when he just waits a bit, Rhiannon fell pregnant within a few months. And even more luckily for the whole succession thing, in this gender-obsessed culture, she gave birth to a boy. Few, you might be thinking. And the happy couples certainly were. The child was born in Narbreth, just before the year was up. The birth was as smooth as it is possible for these things to be. A joyful Rhiannon held her son lovingly in her arms, marvelling at the wonder of the child, relieved it had gone so well, and also knowing that Poik's quarrels with his men would now be put to rest. She went to sleep that night, utterly exhausted from her labour, and about as happy as she had ever been. Six women were with her. They were to watch over the child in the night and do whatever is needed to keep newborns safe and well and attended to. They are going to remain unnamed. Just six women with one job to do. And we all know how well it goes when people have just one job to do. How exactly it came to be they did not know, but sometime in the night all six of the watching women fell fast asleep. What's the big deal, you might ask? Newborn babies tend to make any problems they are having known to all around them, in ways that make up in volume what they lack in descriptive clarity. But as it turns out, not in this case. The women awoke before Rhiannon, probably with that jolting shock of sudden terror. You know the one, when the dreaming brain suddenly realises you forgot to set the alarm last night. You wake up in a panic, and it's probably well past the time you should have phoned in to work to pull a sickie. And from them waking, things only got worse. Where's the boy? The boy's gone! The boy's gone! The women hunted around in desperation, but there wasn't many places that could conceal a baby in the room. We all fell asleep, all of us, asleep. Despite their rising panic, they tried to keep their voices hushed to avoid waking the still slumbering Rhiannon. What'll happen to us? We'll be executed for this. We'll be burnt alive, said one of the women. What are we going to do? Listen, I've got a plan, said one of them. It's the only way. A couple of hours later, Rhiannon woke in the rays of the morning light. The women were gathered around her, looking at her intently, and strangely, but she barely noticed it, so intent was she on seeing her child again. Oh, good morning. Please, give me back my son now. The woman who a few hours earlier had been explaining her plan spoke up. You ask us for your child? After we've struggled with you to so little avail, and you have left us covered in wounds and bruises? The woman indicated her arms, which were black and blue. What? 
You ask us for your child after you destroyed him, after you tore his tiny body apart, after you ate him. Rhiannon had woken into a horror film nightmare. This couldn't be happening. The woman strode forward, grabbed at Rhiannon's arm, raised her hand up to her face, the hand that was dripping with fresh blood. And Rhiannon became aware of a feeling around her mouth. She reached up instinctively, felt the wetness, tasted the sharp iron on her lips. Her world crumbled, pain and madness took a hold of her, and as her wild eyes darted around the room, they took in the small blood-soaked bones scattered around her, scraps of flesh hanging off them. No, no, no! Yes, my lady, that is exactly what happened. No. Rhiannon started to rock back and forth. But slowly, Rhiannon became aware of something. She didn't know quite what it was. At first she was overpowered by her grief and madness, but quickly, something in the way the women acted was. It wasn't right. The way they looked at her, it wasn't with hatred or terror. No. A certainty began to form in her. She hadn't done this. You're lying. This is a lie. I wouldn't do such a thing. Whose blood is this? The women's shuffles and avoided gazes confirmed it. What are you doing? Where is my son? But no matter how much Rhiannon threatened or pleaded with the women, they stuck to their story. And then they called the guards. So yeah, that was the plan. Definitely an extremely macabre and brutal plan. The women had better be damn sure that baby wouldn't show up, or that the crushing guilt wouldn't cause any one of them to confess all. They also better hope that no one could tell the difference between the bones of a newborn dog and that of a human baby, it being a pup whose bones they scattered around, presumably minus the skull and claws and tail and all that kind of thing. And yeah, they just happened to have a newborn dog around, which was fortunate for them, but not for Rhiannon. Soon the whole palace was in a tremendous state of uproar, and it didn't take long before the entire kingdom was awash with the terrible news. All the noblemen of the land gathered together to confront Poich. Poich, who had listened to his wife, who trusted her with all his heart, and knew she could not have committed the heinous outrage of which he stood accused. But his noblemen were not convinced, and were seized with even more fervour than the last time they had confronted him. You must divorce her. Look at what she has done. You cannot be married to such a creature. Poik shot back. You said I had to divorce my wife if she had no children. But she has had a child. If she must be punished for these falsehoods, then let us do so. But she has a child, and she will continue to be my wife. He was still lord of the land, and a lord with connections to the other world at that. And so they grumbled, but accepted this. However, they would make sure she was punished. Rhiannon, for her part, sought legal advice, and not the no-win-no-fee kind, advertised in a cheery jingle sung by a local bard. Rather, she consulted the very sharpest judicial minds of the time, wise and learned men, as they were called. 
Unfortunately, after studying the particulars of the case, noting the six against one, and probably taking into account the distrust about Rhiannon already in existence, these Welsh legal eagles advised Rhiannon that she would be better off accepting a lighter punishment than to try and argue her innocence. Hey, it looks as though the perverse incentives of plea bargaining are going to lead to a miscarriage of justice. How unusual. The sentence handed down by the wise men of the land was a decidedly odd one. Rhiannon was to remain at the court of Narbreth, still married to Poich, but she would spend her days by the mounting block. That's one of those raised stones where people get on their horses. And if anyone came by, Rhiannon was to confess her crimes to them, and explain that as her punishment, she must carry strangers on her backs to court if they so desired it. And she would spend her days like this for seven years. That's right, seven years of performing piggyback rides as punishment for killing and eating your own child. Now, look, I'm not saying this was easy. It was actually awfully traumatic, and far more considering Rhiannon was completely innocent. And this story is definitely trying to emphasise how awful it was. And once again, she was innocent. So it was terrible. Humiliating, hard work, isolation from society. However, given that the six watching women were rightfully concerned that they would be burnt alive just for falling asleep at the wrong time, well, the point I'm making is that it certainly paid well to have good lawyers and be married to the king. Also, we are told that not many people did take up Rhiannon's offer to carry them. The reason why not isn't entirely clear. Sure, some of them probably believed in her innocence, but if I was a betting type, I'd say that her being still married to Poich was a major factor. I imagine it wasn't the greatest look for the local nobility to turn up to their annual appraisal with the prince, all riding on the back of the wife he was very adamant was innocent. And as for Poich... Well, he didn't know what to do. Here was a problem that wouldn't be solved by waiting a year until the inevitable resolution and following a set of instructions. And so, the scene fades on our breath, on a sad and worried Poich, and a weary Rhiannon explaining her alleged guilt to a stranger once again. camera cuts far away to Ternon Tuvliant. Ternon Tuvliant was the best man in the world. No further explanation about this shall be given. Of somewhat lesser importance than his greatest guy living record, he was also lord over one of the cantrefs of Gwent, which was another kingdom of Wales. And he was also the proud owner of the most handsome horse in the kingdom. Every year, on the eve of Beltane, that is the beginning of summer, that horse had a foal, every year without fail. Which was great. More handsome horses. Just what every lord wants. But there was a problem. Because after that foal was born and left in the stable with its handsome mother, then, poof, it vanished without a trace. The day of the annual birth of the foal and its subsequent disappearance, Ternon was discussing this issue with his wife. We're so carelessly losing the mare's offspring every year, he was saying. Yes, dear. 
It's just not good enough. Something should be done. Indeed, dear. Well, what are you going to do about it? Me? Uh, well, well, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll bring the horse into the palace. That's what. And when it has had the foal, then I can see what happens. And so the handsome, heavily pregnant, and presumably quite confused mare was brought indoors. Terranon waited. Soon enough, just as the last of the daylight faded, the horse gave birth to a perfect foal. Though the effect of the birthing process on the decor of the room really doesn't bear thinking about. I hope that at the very least they'd put some covers on all the furniture. Terranon examined the foal. Perfectly normal. Pretty handsome as well. And then, from outside, there came a noise. A terrible noise, unlike anything the Lord had ever heard before. Terranon moved from the foal to grab his sword. And as he did so, a gigantic clawed arm came through the window and grabbed hold of the foal. This might have stunned a normal person into, at the very least, say, cowering? That is, if they didn't run away in outright terror. But this was the best man in the world, and his reactions kicked in immediately. With one powerful stroke of his sword, he cut the arm off the monstrosity, at the elbow. The severed forearm fell to the floor with a tremendous thud, and the foal was free. The terrible noise came again, but this time accompanied with a scream of pain. Like any good hero, Ternon opened his door and rushed off alone into the night in the direction of the noise. But the night was dark and moonless, and he could see nothing of the source of either the noise or the disembodied claw. After a few minutes dashing around and waving his sword, he slowed. He had left the door open. What if it had come back? He rushed back to the palace, and upon arriving he noticed something lying by the door. It was a bundle, wrapped in silk. He bent down for a closer look. A little while later, Terranon entered his wife's bedroom, cradling the foundling in his arms. The royal couple had never had a son, but in the absence of anyone who could be the baby's parents, that changed on that strange night. They called him Guri, and they raised him as their own. What they did with the severed arm is not revealed, but both the boy and the foal who had been saved grew fast and strong. In Guri's case, that was very fast indeed. Though they treated him as their own child, it became obvious that something was unusual about him as the years passed. For while he had been almost a newborn when discovered, by the time he had been with them four years, he had the strength and bearing of a much older boy. So much so that he was given a horse to ride, the saved foal, which had grown at the usual rate for horses and was now ready to be ridden. The family had many good years together, the creature in the night was now presumably armless and made no reappearance to blight their lives. But at some point, word reached Hernon of the punishment of Rhiannon and the circumstance of her alleged crime. He asked questions, got his people to find out more about it, about the dates of it. And the older Guri became, the more his face and golden hair 
began to remind Ternon of somebody, and the more sure he got, the more it caused him grief. He brought his concerns to his wife as soon as he was confident of it. Back in my younger days, I was a vassal for Poich, and our son, I mean, Guri. Guri looks exactly like him. And you've heard what happened to Rhiannon. She lost her baby just a few months before Guri arrived. And though she was accused of all these terrible crimes, Poich has never believed it. They talked long into that night about the rights and wrongs of it. As couples in legends go, especially rich, powerful couples, these guys actually seem to have a pretty solid relationship, rooted in respect and good communication, rather than, say, to pick a random example, falling in love with someone because they passed you by one day on a magical horse. As well as it being the right thing to do, Ternon's sadly unnamed wife weighed up the benefits. We will get thanks and gratitude from Rhiannon for ending her punishment, yet more thanks from Poich for both raising the child and restoring him. And, and if our boy should grow to be a considerate man, he will still recognise himself as our foster son, and always do best by us. Hmm, absolutely. And also, everyone should definitely be told about that time I hacked the huge claw of some awful horse and child-stealing beast to rescue him. I did that in the middle of the night. Let's not forget about that. So they were agreed that there was only one right course of action. They would send their son to Poich and Rhiannon, though it saddened them greatly to do so. The very day after, Ternon and Gori set off for Narbreth, the boy on his new horse. When their journey brought them nearby the court, they found Rhiannon at the mounting block. For years she had been telling her story, and despite the awfulness of it all, the time and the repetition must have done something to dull its impact by now. In a monotone voice devoid of emotion, she intoned, My lord, go no further. I shall carry you to the court. That is my punishment for killing my own son and devouring him. My lady, no one here will burden you so. I certainly will not, piped up Guri. And so they rode for the court. There, well, would you believe it, but a feast was about to begin. Poich welcomed Ternon and invited him to the feast. We only have feasts here on days with a double L in the name, Poich explained. So you're very lucky to catch one. That was a Welsh joke, everybody. Thank you. Now, Rhiannon was also in attendance at the feast, and Ternon sat between her and Poich, which, yeah, raises questions about exactly how this punishment worked. But anyway, they exchanged small talk for a while, and eventually, when the eating was done, the serious conversation began. And having sat on it for too long, Ternon burst into the story. The handsome mare, the boy, how he'd hacked off the huge fricking claw, about how him and his wife had raised the child as their own, about how he had grown preternaturally fast. And so, my lady, Teranon finished, this young man is your son. Whoever told lies against you 
did you a great wrong. And I know that because of the undoubted family resemblance and by the strength of what I have told you here. And I'm sure that there is no one in this entire company who does not recognise that this is your son. There was a pointed pause. Heads turned, waiting to see if anyone would deny it. Any of those nobles who had spoken against Rhiannon previously. The boy is definitely Rhiannon and Poikes, spoke up one man, and there followed a chorus of, Oh yes, definitely, no doubt about it. Rhiannon was overcome with emotion. Oh, blessed relief from this awful anxiety, she said. Pendaran Duved, a sub-king within Poik's land, and currently unmentioned in this story, spoke up. You have named your son with your utterance. Anxiety. Guri should now be called Anxiety. Which, yeah, this sounds quite odd, but everyone seemed to think it was perfectly normal, so why not? And yes, it does sound much better in the Welsh, where the name is Pruderi. There was general agreement. Pruderi shall be his name, said Poich. It is right for the boy to be named after the word his mother uttered when she was told the wonderful news. So Guri became Pruderi. Ternon, I cannot thank you enough for this. You will be compensated most handsomely, and you shall be as a father to the boy from now on. But of course, with your agreement, he must now be raised in my lands that will one day be his. And so, I shall give him to Pendran Duvid to be his foster father from now on. You and your wife can of course visit at any time. And if you're asking, wait, what? Why aren't Poich and Rhiannon raising him themselves, instead of palming the son they've just been reunited with, off to some generic character introduced a few paragraphs ago? Well... Me too, gentle listener. We're just going to have to roll with it. And so it all came to pass. Rhiannon's status was restored, and presumably the women who had lied suffered the awful punishments they tried so hard and elaborately to avoid. Pruderi was raised by Pendaran and grew into a standard hero type. Handsomest, strongest, best at everything. Eventually, when his father passed away, Pruderi succeeded to the overlordship of the seven cantrefs of Duved, and was beloved by all. He did what a good king should, ruled wisely, conquered lots of lands, and eventually took a wife. And though Poich is gone, Pruderi and Rhiannon have further adventures yet to come. And as the book says, so ends this branch of the Mabinogion. So with that rather abrupt conclusion for Poich, we say goodbye to him for the last time. Given the twists and turns in this tale, I think a quick overview of the first branch is useful right now before we dive into some discussion. I said last time it was really three tales in one, and those tales were from the top. Tale 1. Poik's hunting trip, discourteous conduct to Arwen, Lord of the Otherworld, his subsequent job exchange, fight with Afghan, and finally his triumphant return, which we told last time. 
Secondly, the meeting of Poik and Rhiannon, the pursuit of her fast horse, her proposal to him, Poik's stupid promise to Gwal, and the subsequent sneaky beating up of Gwal with the magic bag, and Poik and Rhiannon eventually getting it on. And finally, there's the story of Rhiannon's child, her framing for the boy's murder, her punishment, Turnon's disarming of the clawed monster, discovery of the child, and the return of the child to Rhiannon and Poich. And then, rather than saying they all lived happily ever after, there's that little bit tagged on at the end which just tells us that Poich died years and years later, and Prideri took over after him, and was awesome. Each of these stories are relatively self-contained. Arrowin doesn't make a reappearance at any point, despite his closeness with Poich, and the magic that seems to drip from Rhiannon in the second story isn't mentioned as a method by which she can save herself from the punishments of mortal men in the third. This strikes modern sensibilities as a bit of a plot hole. It seems clear that continuity was not top priority for the writers of the stories. This is easily explainable when one considers that, as discussed last week, these stories were originally to be told aloud. In this case, they wouldn't be orated in one big chunk as I've just done, but told in shorter, digestible snippets for audiences who might not be familiar with exactly what happened in the previous tale. You know, the mead might have been flowing, and you've got to keep things simple, short, and exciting. Another aspect of these tales which partly arises from the storytelling tradition is the onomastic nature of each of them, which I've kind of glossed over, but I'll go back into here. Onomastic, I hear you cry. Yes, imagining listener, that is exactly what I said. It's a fancy word that just means that each of the tales explains the origin of a name. Shaned Davies, who is pretty much the expert on the Mabinogion, says that, quote, The onomastic tags that conclude several episodes point again to narrative that is memory-friendly, unquote. So, the first tale explains why Poik was known as the Lord of Anavan. The second explains when the gruesome badger in the bag was first played. And the third tale explains how Prideri got his name. Each of the stories could therefore be essentially remembered as discrete answers to some kind of medieval jeopardy. The terms explained, Prideri, Badger in the Bag, etc., were presumably more commonly known at the time. Now I'm not going to go over the history of the Mabinogion which we covered last episode, but suffice to say that these stories probably date to around the time of the Norman conquests in the 1050s or so, but also contain elements from much earlier stories. This first branch of the Mabinogion is set in a far distant pre-Christian Wales, which would have been almost as remote to the writers of the tales as their time is to ours. However, by and large, the morals are believed to reflect the concerns of the medieval author or authors in the Welsh kingdoms of the time. Dealing with disputes and insult through legal process and redress, rather than bloody revenge, is an unusual theme for a mythological tale, but it crops up here time and time again. For instance, when Poik offers to make up for his insult against Arrowin in any way he can. When law demands Poik must adhere to Gwal's request, and vice versa. When that matter is not settled with Gwal's death, but rather with legal agreements, and even in the trial of Rhiannon and the return of Prideri. There's also a clear moral encouraging acting good and honourably towards one's friends and social equals. Poik not sleeping with the Queen of the Underworld, Turnon returning Prideri to Poik, 
and Rhiannon and Poik submitting to Hefid Hen's judgment over Gwaal. But though these morals and much of the tales reflect medieval concerns, there is still a basis of them which has elements in much earlier stories that are said to draw from Celtic mythology. The magical otherworld with its coloured hounds, the great clawed hand, the magical bag and horse. Two of the characters are particularly said to hark back to what were once Celtic deities. Ternon, the greatest man alive, has a name that is believed to derive from the Celtic god Tigonos, the great lord of the gods. And it is Rhiannon who stands out the most. Especially in the second story, she seems very different from the other characters, powerful and magical. There is a strong association of her story with horses, her punishment to be used as a horse, her child being stolen by a creature which takes foals, and of course that beautiful white, uncatchable horse on which she first appears. Her name is believed to have been derived from the Celtic goddess Rigantona, the Great Queen, while aspects of her story are also believed to come from the horse goddess Epona. Yet another connection she's believed to have is with the mother goddess Matrona. One prominent theory maps out a transformation over time of a Celtic legend. According to this theory, the rescue of Matrona's son from the other world by her husband Tigonos morphs into the Pryderi episode in the first branch of the Mabinogion over a period of hundreds of years and hundreds of retellings. Connections like these certainly exist. However, despite extensive discussion of them, we don't really know exactly how they map. The details of Celtic religion and stories are by and large lost to us. And what written stories we do have mostly come from much later on, written by Christians and or Romans, and so require a large amount of interpretation. But I would contend that what the Celtic element gives to these stories is a pleasing texture of an ancient, lost and enchanted world, far more mysterious and alluring than the everyday now, or the commonplace medieval times the Welsh tellers of these stories knew well. I really do enjoy this tale and its odd bits, even though there's a lot of snarky asides that I've made because of my aforementioned addiction to continuity, a habit I will aim to kick. I'm particularly struck by the bizarre unexpectedness of both the awful plot to frame Rhiannon and the gigantic arm. They come out of nowhere and make the story strange in a way that definitely appeals. With the last story, I should definitely mention that the vague hints I was dropping that maybe everything didn't go down exactly as we were being told are not in the original story at all. However, it just really struck me when telling it that the birth just after the nobles asked for it and the finding of the child years later just all seemed convenient and the stories around them suspect. So I kind of developed a headcanon around shifting political powers with Rhiannon punished as Poik's power slipped, but years later, when power had shifted again, Poik was able to claim some boy who looked quite similar to him was his son. But that idea is totally not in the original. The other bit of this story that stands out is the discussions of how couples interact. I mentioned it a few times in the telling, but to bring it up again, I do like the different relationship shown. The immediate love between Poik and Rhiannon, which despite its professed deepness, seems somewhat superficial, especially as Rhiannon is soon cursing the stupidity of this supposedly great man. 
Contrast this with the lasting relationship between Turnon and his wife, who raise a foundling child together, and discuss in depth the actions they will take as a couple. And so, as abruptly as the story ended itself, that's it for now. Thank you again for sticking all the way through this overly long episode. Next time I hope we'll have a nice half an hour-ish or so episode where we take a look at a Scottish tale about the least eligible bachelor in Norway, the Black Bull. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information, including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon. (laughs) 